Welcome to the Debts We Owe podcast. My name is Ben Reininger, and today uh, I'm here with my guest, Brandon Allen. Uh, Brandon Allen is the senator for the uh, College of Education, Health, and Human Services at Kent State University. He's a longtime friend of mine back when we were in a uh, libertarian club together, as well as he is currently secretary of the speech and debate team at Kent State University. Uh, he's a great guy, very knowledgeable about a lot of things, and we all love, always love to talk about religion and politics together. And that's uh, for this reason I've had him come today on uh, this podcast to discuss religion, um, except this time as a conversation for us to share. So without further ado, uh, here is Brandon Allen. Um, Brandon Allen, what, uh, yeah, what do you want the audience to know about yourself? Well, thank you, Ben, for having me on, first of all. Uh, I listened to Ben's first <sighs> podcast. It was, it was really great. Um, I thought you and Jake did an excellent job, especially considering that it was your first ever podcast. I just wanted to say that. And then something about myself. Um, well, on top of what you've said, uh, I do have a little business. I, I run a small business and it's not much, but it has taught me a lot about um, not only business, but just like as like work ethic and, and other things. Um, and uh, that's with my friend, Nate. Uh, we do like we just have a little cleaning company and we use it um, just to pay for our college. And outside of that, I really, I really feel like I'm kind of a shallow person, maybe now that I think about it, because I don't have a whole lot to describe myself by. But I do go to church. I am a religious person, and I know that we're going to get into that. Uh, so I thought I would just say that then. There. Gotcha. That's really cool. Yeah, that's cool. And that's Brandon Allen for you. Um, yeah, and so let's get right into it, uh, Brandon, as we normally do with this podcast. Um, what is your religious affiliation? I'm aware you're Christian, but what particular domination and why are you a Christian? So I guess I'm technically a Presbyterian. Um, although I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church, I really grew up more of an, as a non-denominational Christian. My mom was a Catholic. They left the Catholic church when she was young because of some disagreements they had. Uh, and my dad was more of a non-denominational Christian, but really had gotten away from religion and really was not a religious person and still is not a religious person to this day. Um, so as far as my upbringing goes, I really didn't have a really strong religious upbringing. However, about two years ago, my current girlfriend, now Brooke, and I started to really get into these religious conversations. I was talking with her parents about religion and um, I was sort of apathetic to the whole idea of religion. Uh, I didn't, I really didn't care either way. I, I would probably have considered myself a deist. Like I thought, okay, this was created. This is too extraordinary to just have happened from a boom or whatever. Uh -huh. um, but I, I didn't have any, uh, you know, roots in any, any church. But however, like I said, two years ago, I started talking with my girlfriend and I started going to church with her. I started reading more about religion because I really liked her. And honestly, I kind of started to understand that if I wasn't going to be on board with this, that it probably wasn't going to work out with her. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to break things off, to be quite honest with you. Like, I didn't want to at all. But if that was if it was going to be over that, I wasn't going to like sacrifice my own beliefs and my own pursuit of truth for that. So I did some investigation. And I knew that I needed like a rational perspective on it, considering that I didn't have that religious upbringing. Reading, um, I read one book in particular. Um, it was it's called The Creator and the Cosmos by Hugh Ross. 
He's an astrophysicist who's also a Christian. And that book really kind of gave me some perspective on how Christianity, at least in his view and in my own view, which I can't lie, was biased into wanting to believe it because I wanted to believe it because I loved my girlfriend. Um, but it was really convincing to me. And I started to read the Bible. And quite honestly, I had never read the Bible in that way before. And as I started reading it, I started realizing that these things I believe to be true. I really like I fully believed these words to be the truth. And the more I worshiped at, at church, the more I went, the more I became involved, the more I immersed myself in it, the more I prayed, the more I really started to believe that it was true. And uh, and that's how I am today. I I'm a Pres I go to the Presbyterian Church. I've been going there for the last two and a half years, and I'm actually becoming a member there now. Uh, I, I start my membership courses this Sunday, actually. So, and that's the extent of my religious background. I kind of rambled on there for a second. No, that's, that's good. I like, I like the ramble. I like that, that, that open um, expose of your process. Now, I guess two questions come to my mind first hearing that story. When it comes to that Hugh Ross book about the astro God and the cosmos, um, you said it like um, that it was convincing to you that that book in particular was very convincing to you and wanting to mm -hmm. make you believe not only in a God, but also the Christian God, as well as um, you said something about like, I never read the Bible in that way before, but I, I guess that's my second question. What do you mean by that way? Because, um, but yeah, so well, those are my, my first two questions is what, what in that book really changed your mind? Okay. Yeah. So in this book, he kind of would go back and forth between quoting the scripture and then coming to his astrophysics work and sort of showing how the science actually was backing uh, what, what the Bible had said. And just one in particular example, like I can't remember all of them, but one of them that comes to mind is I believe it was in the book of Isaiah when he was describing the creation of the earth, he in, in, in Hebrew or in Greek, I don't remember what it was, what, what, what this translation was. It was either the Hebrew translation or the Greek translation, but it was that um, the world was expanding. Like he, or, or, you know, he stated that the God had stretched the earth out and stretched the universe out, you know? And what he Ross said was that that's like extremely accurate uh, to what actually is going on and what's been studied by scientists. And that is like the universe is expanding. And so there was like mm -hmm. some truth there. And that's just one in particular example, but the, with a really convincing example to me was what he referred to as like fine tuning evidence, which was how perfect everything is in the world. And I'm not an astrophysicist and I don't remember the exact terminology and everything, but there's like, there's a ratio of these, I don't know if it's particles or neurons, there, there's, there's a ratio of negatives and positives in this world that are, that are a net neutral like they equal out the positive and negatives and if that was to ever come out of balance like life could never have existed basically mm -hmm. and like the rotation of the earth it spins at the exact uh speed um in a constant speed if it was to ever stop for a split second i mean there's these little things like 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 literally like the, the miracle of life is just so extraordinary Every, like down to the last molecule everything has to be perfect in order to Mm -hmm. have human life on this earth and that's kind of what he explained and that was extremely convincing to me and as i said you know he went back and forth between the bible and to the astrophysics and i can't recall the exact um, uh, verses and things but it's sort of that and then, mm -hmm. and then to your second question 
about I never read the Bible in that way. And what I mean by that is really I never read the Bible at all, honestly. And I guess the only time I had even been exposed to the Bible was at church where in my experiences, they didn't go, I didn't go to like Sunday school or, or, you know, so I wasn't diving into the Bible. It was like a verse here or there. And then two, I was around a lot of atheists back in high school and in my early years of college. And they would kind of bring up things about the Bible that were more negative that I hadn't. And so my experience of the Bible was like, oh, it's like half positive, half negative, like kind of like, oh, like, well, the Bible condones slavery. Like, you know, it says things Mm -hmm. like that. And so I was like, oh, wow. So it's like mostly bad or at least halfway bad and halfway good when I actually started reading it cover to cover and really getting into it, going to Bible studies and stuff, I realized that it was so much great insight and wisdom and truth that was in that book that I hadn't realized before because of my experience. Hmm. No, I agree with you that there is a lot of great wisdom and insight in, in the Bible. Otherwise, it would not have become a major religion. I mean, this is where I'm do full disclosure to my audience that, you know, I think I might have mentioned it in my episode with Jake. I forget. Well, at least I mentioned it when I was on his podcast. But, you know, I'm agnostic personally, but I acknowledge that like for a religion to truly become one of the great world religions as Christianity has, as Islam has, as Hinduism, as Buddhism has, they have to have something that really touches, I think, to the core of human morality. What is good? What is bad? What is wise? What makes a good human life? And, you know, I think the Bible definitely has that. And I, I like um, your mention of the fine-tuning argument because it's very convincing um, for many people. I mean, it is true that there are dozens upon dozens upon hundreds of different, I mean, thousands, I'm just making up large numbers, of different variables that if they were just adjusted only slightly from this exact point, that, yeah, like our physics wouldn't hold, our, you know, water wouldn't be drinkable, we'd be just this much farther, this much closer to the sun, we'd be dead, etc., etc., etc. And for more atheistic people or more atheistic physicists, their most common response to that general argument goes something along the lines that, well, the universe is just so big and time is so infinite. And there, there might not just be one universe with one physics, that if you allow for such big infinity, such bigness, that eventually there will come a um, universe that is so fine-tuned to allow for all these things. And, you know, it's like the example that if, like, a monkey was at a typewriter for an infinite amount of time, eventually the monkey would type, um, like, Macbeth by Shakespeare or The Taming of the Shrew, et cetera, et cetera. But then you still have to have faith in infinity for um, that to exist. And, you know, that's a lot to have faith in, too. How do I know that infinity exists in a multiverse? That's a lot to have faith in, too, that just everything exists. You know, that's a lot. Um, and so I could get, though, why you'd think that, um, like, you know, you, a god would be responsible for that beauty. And I think there's just also just the general human impulse that whenever you have something that's good, like clean water to drink, food to eat, a warm place to sleep, somebody to love, something beautiful to see. And you want to be grateful for whatever you have. And whenever it's something isn't given to you by a person, makes sense you'd be grateful towards 
God for that. And, you know, then the question of God, it just comes to be, you know, if you have a God, you say, all right, all this crazy stuff, in order to exist and to be in this exact order, you need a God for this to be. Um, the, the question asks, well, how, but then who created God and so on and so forth. You know, it's, it's like, and, and what is God anyway? You know, I've always thought that the fine-tuning argument, it gives good insight into just how spectacular, unique, and rare it is to be alive. But it doesn't point, the argument on its own, without anything else, doesn't point to any specific God, any specific nature of God. Because you could talk about the fine-tuning um, of, you know, all the great things that, that, that we have in our life. But you can also talk about how nature and how it sprung up has led, you know, is in many ways cruel, both for, you know, humans and the diseases humans face, terrible things, um, as well as just in the, in, in the wild when you have sentient animals just having to deal with getting hunted, eaten alive. There's just Nature has horror and it has wonder. So that's kind of a lot of what gets into my mind when I think of, you know, seeing something so amazing and rare and saying there must be a loving God behind that. That's kind of what gets to my mind. And so what I'd like to ask you next, after I'm, and I'm sorry if that was, would be considered rambling, but I think is how do you get from, all right, the fine tuning argument, um, everything is so finely tuned and wonderful, there must be a loving, conscious creator behind this, to, well, how do you get to the fact that it is a loving creator specifically, and how do you get specifically to it is the specific Christian creator, the one talked about in the Bible? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and, and, you know, I, I meant to say this already, but I don't believe that there is proof for God. Like, I'll just say that. Like, I don't, I do not believe that there is proof. Like, and, and to the extent, like, using the scientific method, like, I don't believe that mm -hmm. there's, like, a mathematical, logical, like, explanation for God. I do believe in relying on faith. And so how that led me to Christianity was, in all honesty, the one that I experimented with, naturally, I'm in America, like, that is going to be, and I'm, you know, European of European descent. I mean, it's just would have been the one that I would have and it was the one that I did experiment with. And when I did pray and when I did, you know, follow the laws of the Bible, like I felt in me and you know what? I can't prove by any means that that feeling was God. I can't. And I completely can see, like, I agree, you know, I don't, try to even argue that like I know it is like mm -hmm. I know it is but I also recognize too that I can't prove that mm -hmm. um, and, and so for that reason you know I just like to believe it you know mm -hmm. it's not I enjoy believing it um, it's brought great things to my life I mean but I can't prove it mathematically for you if that makes sense but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I understand that. No, I, I, I get it. If, you're, if you feel it and it's real for you, that relationship to God, I can't argue with people's gut feelings on things. Um, and I'm not like a stickler, like everything in your life must be based on science. You know, it's 
But, because um, I mean, obviously not everything in your life is based. Science can guide you. It's a very rigorous way of testing reality by, you know, you only believe something is true if it can't be proven false. And, you know, you, 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 you leave everything up to scrutiny. I don't know if I said that right, but, mm -hmm. um, but like, obviously science, if anything, I think it kind of reminds me of the quote, I think I forget what philosopher it was like, um, Descartes or one of them said that, you know, or I think it was Hume actually said that reason is slave to the passions that like, yes, yeah, science can tell us what is, how things work and so on. But like the big questions in life, like, how are you, how ought you to be a human why are you here? Why should you continue to be here? Um, science it alone, reason alone doesn't tell you those things. At the end of the day, you do follow your gut with a lot of things. And a lot of people follow their gut when it comes to questions about the essential nature of the universe, you know, and they, and, you know, and, and so, when it comes to me particularly, I just take a different approach it's in the sense that I, I just don't, I just say that I don't know. And there's a lot of reasons that I say that I don't know, and I, it, rather than just, you know, having faith um, in, uh, in the Christian God or in any God. And I could go into that um, myself a little bit. But first, I guess I might as well just ask um, you... Um, I don't know what, what do you say to people that don't get that feeling? Cause it, it sounds like for you, it's just a big, it's a big, it's, it, your religiosity is to a great extent driven by feeling and this, this something in your stomach rather than rationality or historicity, looking at the history of the resurrection and the evidence for it and so on. It's, it's a feeling. What do you say to people that don't? get a feeling and i could go maybe in in depth a little bit in a, in a little bit about why i have the feelings that i have and so on okay yeah and so i i will admit you know on that that i didn't it didn't happen overnight i didn't just drop to my knees and pray and think oh you know now i believe it wasn't like that at all it was a long process mm -hmm. and what i found was that I had for so long in my mind needed like a mathematical because I wanted I wanted to lead a life of leave, living a reasonable life like where I use my 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 reason and my rationality and science to guide my life which I think is a good way to guide your life but that acted as a barrier big time like even when I wanted to believe I still couldn't and it really was not until I absolutely let my guard down and I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe with everything I did. And I, and I get that some people and was try that and not experience. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What do you think you said earlier that your big drive to want to believe was so you could, because you loved your girlfriend and wanted to share your faith with your girlfriend. Was yes. there anything else that made you want to believe or was it just that? Yeah. Yeah. No, there were, there were also several things and it kind of came about, through the whole progression like as i started kind of immersing myself in that life like i started to think about the questions of death more often and like that i hadn't thought about before but because you know religion is largely about death i mean that is it gives people comfort death. about yes. death and you know 
It's like atheists and Christians, to a great extent, live in the same world on Earth. Um, they can observe a lot of the same things. Yes, there's some components, some interpretations of those worlds, that world that's different. But, you know, it's, it's really, it's the afterlife. The, what happens to your soul, your, your conscious being afterward that is, is what religion is to a great extent about. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you read about the kingdom of God and I, you know, reading in the Bible, I, I don't remember what parable it was or whatever, but it's, you know, they're describing it as like, if, uh, and I don't even remember the exact uh, story really, but it was something to the effect of like um, a silversmith or a die. It was like, or a, or a treasure hunter, you know, finds a treasure. And like, it was, it's like that feeling. It's like, it's like the greatest thing that you, you can't even fathom. It's like, oh, he had the treasure and then he hid it away from everyone. Then they found it again. Like, you know, it's like these, these, these like parables that try to allow us to even imagine how great it would be, you know. And then also I hear descriptions of hell and realize like, you know, death is eternity. And that feeling, when that, when that feeling really sunk in, like I've said that out loud before but it didn't hit me and when those feelings started to click for me like it was like death is like eternity like this life on earth is short really and to the extent of the, how long i will be dead you know and it's like if it is like what if this is the truth you know and like these questions came up to me and it was all at once and then also another thing that inspired me and i'm sorry if i'm like not making sense but nothing to be sorry about no and then like, another reason was like just the tradition of Christianity. Mm -hmm. I love history. I am a conservative. And so I respect and enjoy the, the traditions of people, you know, of humankind. And, you know, when you study the history of Christianity, that clearly has like its downfalls. But it's also like really quite spectacular what the Christian people were able to accomplish. I mean, Although not everyone that founded America was Christian, it certainly was inspired largely by the words and like the beliefs of, you know, like the Puritans and things like that. And it's uh -huh. like, I don't know. And like the pilgrims coming religious freedom, you know, they're Protestant Christians and like just this, all the, the tradition, like I felt, I felt some kind of connection to it. And then, and it, like wanting to believe it because of my girlfriend and wanting to believe it because I thought about the question of death. Like it was just a combination of things that once I was able to really think about it enough, I got that feeling. Like when I listen to worship music, like I will actually, tears of joy will uncontrollably, they, they will come out. Like I will, like I feel the presence and I don't, and I've never experienced that until I like let my guard down and just wanted it more than anything. Yeah, I guess if you want to believe something and you really lean into it and you um, like, you know, that, that and, you, and you become open to believing something, to a great extent that can lead you to believe it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess like to, in a great part, how religion, like, you know, um, it sounds like your story um, is very similar to other stories I've heard of people who started out non-religious and got into religion is they kind of just opened themselves up and immersed themselves in it. And then it just became part of them. It never was, I guess, I, I never met anybody going into religion that had like a really rigorous set of standards to be met. Like I need X, Y, Z 
you know, claims to be proven or disproven or so on or so forth. At, at least nobody, I, like, let me put it this way. I've never heard of a story of somebody be antagonistic to religion um, uh, and then that, and somehow enter into religion through having each of their own theses being disproved a lot, disproven along the way. I think it, it's very hard to be um, c completely neutral when looking at religion because it has such an effect of our, on our society and our own lives. Um, you know, positive and like um, you know, there's and then and the ways that in which Christianity is positive are just so so much to count, and I don't discount that. But then you think, all right, well, then why are people not religious? And I could talk about my my reasons for that I'm non-religious. Um, now I'll go into that now for the audience. Um, I because I kind of had an opposite path as Brandon here. I started out in a very religious, very Catholic uh, family. Um, I was super Catholic and I was super into it all the way through, um, it, all the way through the ninth grade. I was fully, fully religious, a fully Catholic person, if you will. And then, um, you know, I got into high school and it really all started, I think, my sophomore year. I sat at lunch with these three people, um, all atheists, all liberal. I was conservative at the time. And I argue with them every single day at lunch, they got me to join my high school speech and debate team. And then I immersed myself. That was about the time I got a smartphone. I watched YouTube and I would watch a ton of Christian apologist versus atheist debating YouTube videos. I watched them over and over and over and over again. And I would root for the Christian apologists at first and so on. And like you, there wasn't one day that you came into faith. There was not one specific day that I came out of faith. But there's, I guess, a couple big sticking points to me that just made me not fall in love with Christianity anymore, um, personally. And uh, one of them was just homosexuality in the Bible. And I've read up on this. I know some, um, you know, people say that, can you, like, you still hear me, Brandon? You're frozen. Oh, yeah, I can oh, still hear you. Okay, okay, cool. But I'm uh, losing my train of thought. But yeah, I mean, in the Bible, um, there's discussion of homosexuality in numerous parts of it, including, you know, there's the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Now, that one's more arguable because there's all kinds of debauchery going on there, sexual, you know, people being polyamorous and so on, up, having sex outside of marriage. Now, when God condemned that city, it, you can't say that it was out of homosexuality alone, but there's other verses that are very clear, you know, that a man shall not lie with a man or it's an abomination, you know? And then I've looked kind of extensively into this because people argue, oh, it's a mistranslation over time and so on and so forth. And then, you know, they, um, but then I look at the ancient translation. I'm like, no, that's what this is really saying, that it's immoral. And then I read, oh, a gay pastor says, well, the new, in the New Testament, Jesus said that he has fulfilled the old law. Okay, that doesn't really even make any sense to me because you, why would God create an old law that people had to suffer for, for, for thousands of years? And even so, why, even if God never said anything about homosexuality, if he was truly the most loving God he could be, and I mean, what I know about homosexuality, and, and you know, he would have, have told people to accept it, so he would have prevented all this suffering over thousands of years. So I just didn't really get it. I didn't really get that. That's one point. But that even wasn't the biggest sticking point. 
for me. Because, I mean, there's all kinds of suffering in the world. Maybe uh, God let the Hebrew, let the Israelites say all kinds of things that he, like in his name, including his holy books that aren't actually his words and so on. And then there's just that typical Christian response that Jesus gave the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And that defeats all other commands, which is like, okay, I believe in love your neighbor as yourself, but you don't need to believe in, you, in, you don't need to be a Christian to believe in love your neighbor as yourself. And that gets me to, I guess, my second point um, about why I just stopped um, being Christian. Not only that, I didn't just stop being Christian. I mean, there was a time period where I wasn't Christian, but I was constantly reading and reading and reading, trying to get to the bottom of something. And I stopped all the reading and reading and getting to the bottom of something, too. So what stopped me from even that, that interest is just this, I guess, simple thought that when it comes to the subject of what happens in the afterlife, there's this idea that if you don't choose God and say, God, I want you, I accept you, you're, you're my savior, um, I am I'm created to, 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 to glorify you and to become part of you, you know, if you don't do that, then you die, and then it's a type of hell. Now, there's all kinds of de like um, disagreements about hell, um, whether hell is just a gigantic, fiery, endless suffering, like that Southern, you know, that Baptist version of hell, just infinite suffering versus just infinite emptiness, loneliness, separateness from God. And then there's some Christians, liberal, young Christians, more fashionable, that say, oh, hell isn't real, it's just a parable which I don't know where they get that from. And, I, and you could debate the, bib, the biblical scholarship and all that and so on and so forth. But here's the bottom line about Christianity for me. As I understand Christianity, in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, it's not just about doing good de deeds. You know, it's about having some faith, at least in most interpretations do. But like, it's not just the kind of faith described that most Christian churches ad ad adhere to is not the kind of faith where, oh, I acknowledge that God does exist. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not just believing that God does exist. It's accepting that Christ is your savior. And this belief that you must accept Christ, the one God, as your savior in order to have complete fulfillment in the afterlife. Otherwise, you're done. No complete fulfillment in the afterlife. And I just struggle with the idea of ever falling in a deep love with Christ if Christ is a God that just lets people just because they didn't have faith in their lifetime um, uh, drift off into eternal separateness. Like, is he really an all-loving God if he lets all these things happen? And so um, why would I then, I couldn't truly love Jesus Christ and love fall in love with God as a Christian does. If God, if God would be like that and just would let so many people fall off the edge and mind you, the majority of humans fall off like that because vast majority of humans that have ever lived have not been Christian. I just couldn't fall in love with that. And then in it, alternatively, if, but if God, if Jesus isn't like that and I could just start a relationship in the afterlife that I'm not going to spend so much time um, worrying um, and trying to fit into this 
ideological, dogmatic, whatever denomination of Christianity is box, um, a belief system, I'm just going to, to follow the one command that Jesus gave, which I think is very wise. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'll have faith in that. I'll have faith that the other people around me are, are, are real. And I'll go and make the world as beautiful and as pleasant as it can be. And that's enough for me. Everything else, though, there's so much, just enough things in the Bible that are just disquieting for me that I, I just don't acknowledge as my moral document, as the moral document for my life. Um, many things in it seem immoral, like slavery, which is interesting. We, we can talk about that later. Um, yeah, and that's kind of the perspective that I come with uh, in regards to this. Um, I, I know this, it, religion is just so much to talk about because there's so much packed into it. Um, but I guess, do you have any response to something, I, anything I've said so far? Uh, yeah, just, I'll just touch on a few things because I didn't know when you wanted to get into like, you know, the main topic or, or whatever, but, um, just, just, just a few things, um, that you said, well, one on the homosexuality being a mistranslation, I was just going to agree with you and say that. Yeah, that's, I think by most biblical scholars that that's been kind of disproven. What, what, I, what I read about that was that came, there was some university that published it. It was a Christian university that had published like the, the biblical scholarship on the subject. And the paper was written by two homosexual Christians that more or less were trying to, you know, seek out a reason. And this is, I mean, obviously I'm, assuming that's what they were doing, but it kind of seems like intuitive. That's probably what they were doing, seeking out a reason to justify their lifestyles and also be Christian. Anyhow, um, and, but you, you know, you mentioned a few things like a loving God would, wouldn't, would want uh, people to accept homosexuality. Like you mentioned that. And then you also mentioned something um, like you, you, you couldn't fall in love with God um, if it let people like fall off the edge. Right. Um, and not believe in Christianity just for the simple fact of not, you know, believing. Um, and my response to that, and it's an honest one, is that I don't pretend to understand God. Um, I, just, I, I don't understand it. You know, like there are certain things that I initially like thought, I don't know if I can get on board with that. And, and these were particularly two things that I also kind of struggled with that I didn't know if I could get on board with. But I just, I came to the conclusion that I am a human mm -hmm. and, and I'll, I'll go off topic for one second and just explain why I understood the true significance of being human. And it was because I had a near, near death experience once. And I'm not going to go into like the details of it, but I legitimately had a near death experience and didn't know that. Yeah. And anybody who's ever had one, or at least what the Reddit forms tell me, because after I had this, I read, you know, I was reading Reddit forms and things. And a lot of people experience like extremely, you know, crazy things. I and mean, when I was having mine, like I understood at that point what a human being was. Like I, it's, it's unbelievable. Like I can't even begin to explain the feeling and the thoughts that go through your head. But like, I understood like my, my flaws and like, I understood like, how insignificant like my life really was. And so it's for that reason that I'm comfortable with coming to the conclusion that like, I just don't understand God. 
and I'm not even going to pretend to. And I really just have the faith that what he says is true, although my own human instincts and desires or whatever you want to call it, like lead me to want to believe something else. Like mm-hmm. I come back to the fact that I realize how insignificant I am and how imperfect I am and how limited I am. And I just believe, but I sympathize with what you're saying, but the, I, I, I think Christians are supposed to be different. That's the whole point. I mean, if you look back in the biblical times, like sexuality was not forbidden. I mean, in almost every, in almost every civilization that existed in the past, whether it was Greece or whether it was Rome, I mean, homosexuality was rampant amongst them and it wasn't punishable a lot of the times. The, the Egyptians, I mean, like that was, I mean, uh, taboos, it's taboo now, but like the sexual desires and preferences and the things they did then were, you know, totally not biblical. And so the Bible came in and said like, this is wrong. It was kind of really like, I don't know, like monumental. I don't know the right word for it, but it was kind of extraordinary what it did. And, and like the whole idea was Christians were supposed to be different. They were supposed to live against the grain and, and be moral. And like when, when the society is corrupted, you know, you stick to the word. And so like, it's all of these things that allow me to be okay with it, saying those things, even though like my human desire. So do you personally believe that homosexuality is immoral? Yeah, I do. And and that's the thing is like, and I'll say that I do, but like, I think also too, I'm like more sympathetic to it because like my desires to believe it, like I'll say I'm conflicted. Don't get me wrong. You're conflicted. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm conflicted, but like ultimately like I want to believe what the Bible says because I believe that is the word of God. And I gotcha. But I'm also like someone too that like, like I know there are Christians who say they believe in the Bible hear that homosexuality is a sin and then they like hate gay people and and like won't talk to them won't be friends with them xyz but then also in the same bible it says love your neighbor as thyself right and i think that's yeah that's a good point i think people like there are people who are say they're christians who actually do hate gay people and they, they use the bible behind that and no i mean i mean I think ultimately, if you say homosexual, if you advocate a policy or a morality, a way of thinking that homosexuality is immoral, you are hurting gay people. But there's a difference between just believing that and believing that plus actively hating gay people as people um, and constantly judging them or, or disown, like parents that disown their children. Like there's different cases, you know, like my parents in particular, I um, mean, other people in my family very Catholic family, like don't hate how, like they resent, for example, how the American media, they think depicts them as gay haters when they think, no, they, the Bible says it's immoral, but I don't hate these people. I still love them. And then I guess the response to many liberal Christians would, would say is, oh, you can't really love them if you don't accept them for the full part of who they are. And it's like, well, actually, I don't think that's true. There's plenty, you know, I think that the fact that like, I think that there's plenty of things that are parts of people that you can love people, but not accept everything that they are like, you know, I know conservatives, progressive, libertarians. I I knew a communist, you know, I knew all kinds of people. I didn't disagree with everything that they were, but guess what? I still loved them. The dip, but the difference is though, it, it, it is that, I mean, even more than politics, 
your sexuality is a big part of your life. Um, it is. You, 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 have, you carry, it's, it's kind of demonstrated on a daily basis once you have a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife that you take with you everywhere alongside you. You know, that's a, that's a big thing. And if your parents believe that's immoral, that fractures a relationship no matter how way you, any way you twist it. Um, especially when it's in the family, then it really is hard to, it, it, that's what I'm saying is that even you can love gay people while thinking that it's immoral, but I don't, I still think that the belief that it's immoral in my view, at least from what I've seen, from my experience, from what I've read, it does plenty of damage from what I've just talking to gay people, not being accepted. And I, I just think it just creates unnecessary suffering. And it's for that reason. And many other things in the Bible too, not just that, that I can't, at least for me, see the entire Bible as a moral, an absolutely good moral document. I just personally can't. Um, but that's why it's part of the reason that I don't believe in it. That doesn't mean that I don't believe there can't be a God, even a loving one, even um, like I, that, even that there might be a spiritual realm. Because as you said, I, I'm human. You're human. We're both humans having this conversation here. Um, we, there's just so little, and if, especially if you spent any time studying physics, there's so little in the vast expanse of things that are that like humans can actually even perceive. Like think about light, for example, all the different spectrums of light. Uh, we can just see this narrow bit, how many dimensions there are. Think about, you know, that I don't, to the point where, I, the, the, the world is crazy as shit. I have no idea what the metaphysical basis for everything is. Um, all I know is that just that there's no specific metaphysics in, of the world's religion that I think allows me to live my best human life. I'll put it that way. Um, yeah, and then so that, that, that's a big factor for me. Yeah, and I know like what you said with your near-death experience is very interesting. Now, many people, when they get near to death, they, they realize how insignificant their life is in, in, in terms of it's just how small your life is against the vast expanseness of the universe and so on and it makes you take death and life seriously and taking death and life seriously can make you think like you said this is something i wanted to touch on that you said earlier you said death is eternity and how dark and scary that is to think oh my goodness after i like I'm alive for such a little bit of all that is time, and the rest is just death. And I think, but like, how you think of death, death doesn't scare me. The fact that I, my life could end, the fact that I could be shot, ran over, struck by lightning tomorrow, it doesn't scare me because here, I don't think of, of, of life as just constant, you know, as death, excuse me as just like constant darkness, like me being locked in a dark room, conscious, going mad forever and ever. Because how I at least see death, um, provided that, you know, my life is, a, my soul, my conscious is rooted in my biology, it, you know, is that it's just I'm not, is, is, is my, my existence after death is the exact same as my existence after, before I was born. There were millions of years of, dar of, of darkness, big other stuff existing before I was born, and that didn't create any horror in my mind. Um, similarly, there'll be millions of years afterward, 
And that doesn't, that's also doesn't create horror in my mind because at least I don't think I'd be conscious to experience it. Or if, let's say that I have a soul and that soul is going somewhere. Um, and I will be conscious with that. And that soul will be conscious. Well, then ultimately it's something I can't control. Or at least all I want to do when it comes to things that are in my control is just live my life lovingly towards others. Um, and, he, and anywho, yeah, I just that's interesting though. I could I see how that it, I could see how death can be scary. Um, I don't know, but for me the scarier thing is just being lonely here on Earth. Um, I, so long as I have people I can really cherish and form deep relationships with here, I can find happiness. At least that's my personal uh, view. So I wish I could answer you, ask you more direct questions. But do you have uh, um? Any anything to comment on something I've, I just said so far? Um, I guess the only thing I mean, I I actually will say that I sympathize with with your with your outlook on death, though, because uh, like prior to my experience, and also even even after that experience, before I really like reflected on it, like I I, I pretty much felt the same way. Like I honestly like I never had really been scared of death. Um, I thought about it very similarly, similarly to you, because like I said, I was trying to allow reason and science to guide my life. So I thought, okay, well, brain off, I'm off. Like, why do I care what happened? You know what I mean? So I completely understand. It really wasn't until I got into these questions of God and everything that I even thought the way I do now. And, but, um, what I wanted to ask you was, okay, so, you know, your, one of your grievances with the Bible is homosexuality and you know people not being accepting or believing that somebody's lifestyle or you know is immoral like they're in something that's so significant as sexuality i think is, that many lifestyles are immoral i just think that one in particular these is healthy and to not live in accordance with your orientation likely is pathological it's damaging it's hurtful. okay and, and, that, and that's why i was like wondering like where where like well what would be immoral you know what i mean like like, that's what I was kind of wondering, because, like, what, so what defines immorality? I mean, that's a whole other question. Like, whole... Yeah, but what, what I was going to bring up was, like, pedophilia. I mean, like, that, I mean, like, people who are, like, attracted to children, that is, like, like as significant no, and... as people attracted to just the same sex. And I get it's different. But what I was going to, I mean, but, but respond to that first, then I'll tell you what else. So pedophilia. Um, the difference is... Homosexuality, two individuals satisfied. Pedophilia, one individual satisfied. Other, other in, in most circumstances, um, very much hurt, damaged, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just, it's a, I'd be like our friend Nick here. Nick will come on a future podcast, but utilitarian, like it creates more damage than it does um, like uh, suffering, like it, pleasure, which is weird to even acknowledge the fact that they get pleasure or that that is one of their only pathways to which they can because that's how they're wired and i kind of understand that people who have pedophilia like it, it's like some of them actually are attracted to both adult you know humans and little humans in which mm -hmm. case i would direct those people to seek out adults but some are just truly wired where they can't really experience any pleasure um other than with, with, with kids, which is, it's sad. It's, it's, it's terrible. And, but there's not no way to be around other than acknowledging the facts as they are in that case. 
And yeah, and I, so I, I'm not against sacrifice or even people suffering. I mean, sometimes people need to suffer for the greater good. And, you know, um, and that's a clear example of that. It's like, yeah, if you had, if you can't, um, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's suffering so much as it's less pleasure because here's, because here's the thing, other thing. I think you can have a completely fulfilling homosexual relationship. I don't think a pedophilia can ever be fulfilled because guess what? Like the kid that they engage with will grow up. They'll no longer be a kid anymore. They don't actually form an enduring deep relationship. It's mostly erotic. And it isn't, it doesn't have any of those other components that actually matter, that really do matter, you know, in a, in, in, in a human life, I would say. Um, it's not that you can't live happily um, not engaging in sexuality. I mean, that priests don't engage, Catholic priests don't engage, you know, in sexuality. I mean, they, they just... Either they don't engage in sexuality with another partner at the very least. Um, it's to say nothing at least in what they, they do alone. But it's just like, and then you, the question is though, do certain people when they don't get into relationships, that they get into pathological states of mind? That's the other thing. Um, and I think that can kind of happen when, when gay people don't engage in the relationships they get in. They, 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 I don't know. It, it makes them less good people. When, I think they need relationships as much as straight people need relationships in that it, relationship is a way for you and another partner to constantly improve each other, to try and m correct each other's faults and like complement each other while also sharing similar values and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, that's kind of my thought on that. Okay. And honestly, I mean, we could probably go back on and forth on that for uh -huh. a while, but I don't know yeah. if that's, that's something you'd want to do if it's necessary or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. So I think we're 45 minutes in. I think we've had a good discussion so far on where we both stand individually, religiously. This is where we get into what we always do with the Debt Suyo podcast, which is go from individual to society. Um, what religion is looking like nationwide, worldwide, etc. So let's start closer to home, nationwide, United States, where we both now reside. Let's talk about, you know, developments we've seen um, in terms of religion here in this country. Um, you know, I think with both of us, we spent um, a lot of time talking how, for us at least, our interactions with religion have been deep. Like we read or watched a lot of stuff, dozens upon dozens of hours of things that we really questioned things, right? And that's how we converted the ways that we did, in addition to getting into the social groups that we do and so on and so forth. But the question is, does every, I, I don't think everybody, even a majority of people that become religiously unaffiliated in the United States um, or, you know, even get into religion sometimes, do it in such a serious, concentrated manner. You know, um, I could pull up some statistics here that I think are really interesting from uh, the Pew Research Center about why Americans non nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not to be confused, N-U-N-S-E-N-S, excuse me, um, which about like something like 27 to 30 about a third of Americans, a fifth to a third of Americans, don't affiliate with any religion. 
And it's interesting. You see that like, I don't know, 30% of Americans don't affiliate with a religion. But then the statistics are breaking, broken down that says, oh, only 7% are agnostic or atheist. I mean, the other 23%, well, they, the, the picture that's often painted is the other 23%. They must, they, they must believe in a God, but don't affiliate with a particular religion. Well, this Pew poll that actually asked people, why did you leave your particular religion, the faith you were raised in? Um, here's, here's, here are the basic stats. This is from 2016, so it's five years old. But I think that these statistics probably didn't, haven't changed that much radically in the last five years, I wouldn't at least assume. Say that about half of um, religious of of the nuns um, left the religion because they don't believe in the religion. Um, break that half down. You take that fifty percent. Thirty-six out of that fifty say, "Well, they were disenchanted. They don't believe." Let's. I would just say just that'd be just general, you know, atheism, like agnosticism. They don't believe in the whole thing, right? Or at least they're disenchanted with the whole thing. And then you have 7% they're just not interested in. So that's a more dispassionate, or they say they don't need religion. That's 7%. And then they said, then, you know, 7% said their views evolved. Another 1% said they went through a crisis of faith. Then you move down after that, beyond that 50% that it's disbelief. Then you have like 20% um, that say, they dislike organized religion. 20% say they're unsure, undecided about religion, you know, which means, which kind of like still in my eyes is like agnosticism. They don't know, they don't claim to know or have any particular faith. And then they have, you have 10% known as inactive believer. They just are non-practicing. So this is the example of like the person that is religious, but just doesn't practice religion, right? That's like 10%, so one out of five, uh, like, um, or excuse me, one out of 10, I, I, I was I mixed it up. But one out of 10 of the people that are in that third of our country that are not religious. And so that's an interesting breakdown. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like, um, yeah, it, it, I think that, that breakdown at least kind of is different than the normal breakdown I see. The normal breakdown I see is you have uh, like, you know, a third of Americans, non-religious, but only a quarter of them are truly atheistic in any way. The other three quarters of that third, they're still, they still believe in the supernatural, in God, but not a particular one, not a particular organized religions one. This one, that this survey here kind of shows to me at least that like a half of that third isn't really into any particular, doesn't have any sort of belief whatsoever in a God of any sort. So I don't know what in your experience, because those are some summary statistics, but in the atheists, you know, I guess first we can talk about people. I mean, I guess people who were born in an atheist family are kind of a more boring story because most people who are born in a family that isn't religious just stay, they just don't stay, they stay not religious. But, in, but we're talking about why people are leaving religion. And in your experience in the people that you've seen that started out in a religious family and then became non-religious. What, what do you think pushes those people and the people you've talked to that are in that crowd? So, you know, right off the bat, you kind of said something that 
I think is very true in that most people's experiences with religion have are not as deep as both of ours have been. And I think a lot of people, and this is like held true, and this was one of the biggest points I wanted to make, and is that their foundation was shaky to begin with. Like in my in my opinion, like I just think that a lot of quote unquote Christians, people who would identify as Christians, are not people that were brought up like you, like reading the Bible, like going, I mean, of all the people that you knew that had similar upbringings to you, I, I would, I would imagine probably you are a minority of the people who had left. Like I, I would just imagine, you know, like with similar upbringings to you. And that's because it's difficult for someone with a foundation like yours to actually convince yourself otherwise, like to, you know, like to actually go through a process of leaving that belief because it's so true to you. And it's painful too. Yeah. Leaving right. belief is painful. I've never just living in the world by living. I mean, just absorbing that world. I've never being part. There's this whole segment of YouTube you call atheist YouTube and listening to any of these people talk the story of them leaving their religion. Part of what probably motivates them to just do atheist YouTube rather than just be quiet about their atheism as most atheists do is the fact that it is painful, but it's part of the fact that they, most of them came from very religious families and going the other way um, kind of to- like, 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 like caused just, it wasn't just an academic matter. It wasn't even just a personal matter. Like, Oh, I don't have the promise of eternal bliss anymore. It's like, it's a community. It's like a, like you're breaking apart from this shared reality of people. And in a way, in this one way, you're never as connected with that group as you once were. So it's painful, but I didn't, I guess I'm sorry I interrupted that thought, but continue the thought you were saying. No, no, no. That, no I thought no, that was good. Um, <sighs> but yeah, my main point was just that I don't think that they had the foundation. I think that's that is the main reason why people leave. And and the reality is too that we live really busy lives. Like the lives of Americans specifically today are so much different than the lives of Americans in the 1950s. Like one, people are taking careers more seriously both now men and women whereas Mm -hmm. before that wasn't the case um and there's been a lot of things just society i like technology things that are keeping us away from different different like communal organizations whether that be the church or whether that be um you know political organizations and like civic engagement and things like that like there's been a lot of things that distract us. And I think that people thought by raising their kids different than them, that they would also hold it. Like, for example, like I think a lot of boomers were probably raised in the church, going mm-hmm. to church. Actually, I mean, factually, statistically, that is the case. That was the case. People were going to church in America at very high rates, very high rates of people were practicing Christians. And I think a lot of the boomers in the age of this, of, uh, modernity and all the new tech- technological advances and other things that come along with it, they raise their children differently. They didn't, pr- they didn't give them the more, the foundation and the religious foundation that they had, and then just expected them to believe it in the same way that they always had. And I think at that point, it becomes very easy to forget and to leave behind a belief that you didn't really have roots in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and real, and I mean, society 
largely, although Christianity is so embedded in America, like I still do believe that that's true. A lot of popular culture is not, at the very least, it's apathetic to Christianity or religion in that in that matter. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. And then with with prayer being kicked out of school, there's just so many. I mean, it's just so hard to. Pinpoint one thing, but I think the main thing is a lack of foundation and then a society that doesn't like promote it as much as what it used to and it doesn't like cradle it and coddle it as much as what it used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the lack of foundation is key, you know, um, because I mean, the biggest factor in creating a like a faith, in my personal view, I think you might agree with this, it isn't like making kids re- read in middle school and high school, like, d- like um, articles by apologists saying, you know, like, like about the, expe- like ex- trying to defend the historicity of the resurrection, for example, or trying to defend each individual claim in this very logical m- manner, I, I guess. It, it's, it's making someone embedded in a community, and I would also say a way of life. I would say Christianity is a way of life. It's a way of... Um, it, like uh, of you know thinking about the world um it, it, about about you know what what what's the purpose of you being here to glorify god to live love your neighbor as yourself uh through your works and so on and so forth and it it, it gives a series of social norms sexual norms um as well as it gives a series of parables about how you're supposed to treat each other whether it be the parable of the product, the parable of the prodigal son, to the parable of the mustard seed, or the parable of um, I, I had another one in my. There's many par, there's many parables. Obviously, there's does I, my brain's just farting right now, as brains often do. Um, but it, it's in a, it's in a way of life that you get embedded into, and if you don't really see it as a big part of your life, then y- you are more susceptible to leaving it. Um, for, for just to, just for the fact of getting busy and disinterested and then following if you will other gods whether it be the gods of just you know of just you know making your career a god um and like you said you people who are just entirely busy with their careers just making people make money a god people make all kinds of things they just they they don't and they just really don't care for or follow the god of their youth i think that is a common story um so yeah, I, de- I definitely think the fact that America being so um, busy and just people getting wrapped up in um, just modern American life, consumerism, careerism, and not can make people so busy they want to sleep and so tired they want to sleep in on Sundays, and they don't get embedded. They don't take their kids to church and so on, and that's that's a big part of the drifting. I I, I just agree with you there. Um, yeah, and I would just, yeah, like, and I would just say that I think that there, yeah, there's also is the social element of, you know, like, issues like, um, LGBT, but that's not the only issues, people, like, disagree with the way women are talked about in the Bible and so on and so forth, as well as there's just other, other issues that are more, I feel like those are the two big issues, but then also divorce is, is, is discouraged in the Bible, like, and that's not just the Old Testament God. Jesus himself said some pretty serious things about divorce, that it is a sin to remarry after divorce. 
Didn't say the divorce itself was a sin, actually. I, if I recall the verse, it was in one of the Gospels. Um, but yeah, this is, I think there's also those like, the social movements, I think, are another part of why people leave religion. But I think those social movements wouldn't take off if it weren't for people not being embedded in, 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 the, in the first place. I mean, because in part because when you are embedded, it's just such a high cost to, to leave. You know, um, I always talk with my one Mormon friend, Christopher Smith, a couple of years ago. He, he, and I was talking about like, he, he, one time he told me, he's like, I'm just so far in at this point. There's no way I'm getting out. And I'm like, but that, that almost seems like you're almost admitting to me that, well, he's also, he's even said, he's even told me, he's like, Ben, even if it isn't true, so what? It creates so much happiness and so, on, and so much for me that like, you know, and it does create happiness. It also creates like a, I, it gives the world a meaning, a structure. And this reminds me, now we're getting way off topic, but I don't know if you, you, you know the philosopher Slobod Zizek. He's yeah, a, yeah, uh-huh. he has such a funny voice. I mean, yes. he, that's just delightful. I, I like he's very, it's a, intel- very he's very intelligent. He's a full blown Marxist, so disagree mm-hmm. with him on that. No, you disagree with him on that. But I mean, I get what like um, but he's but Marxism isn't the the only thing that he is. He's also an ontologist, which is a the ontology. I talked about this with my last podcast with Jake, and the next per- person I'm having on this podcast is a philosopher of ontology, Olbjerg. But yeah, I think Slovod Zizek has talked about how this idea about ideology, this goes for both religious and political ideology. One of his central theses is that ideology, this view of ideology, and I, I put religion under ideology because it's a, it's a set of ideas about the world, about humans, what, how they ought to live, how they're supposed to relate to each other, think of themselves. Um, you know, Zizek has argued in some of his books that ideology isn't just a prism there's this idea that like there's the real world right and your ideology your set of religion that's a prism that's a set of glasses you put on that when you look through those glasses it distorts your view of the world and that the objective that you should seek is to take those glasses off throw them aside so you can get down to the real world and Zizek says no 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 we need ideologies to explain the world. Humans are a, is a storytelling. Humans are a storytelling animal, right? And this is kind of gets to like also related branch of philosophy known as phenomenology, right? And I'm and I am a very amateur philosopher. Forgive me that for those that are really steeped into philosophy and philosophy majors um, describing things incorrectly ever. I don't know if they're going to be living listening to this, but the idea that you know, when you live it, when you're living your life, your conscious everyday experience, and you look at a chair, like you don't just experience the chair simply as it is. Like you just see it's all its dimensions. Like, huh? No, you you have a word to give to that chair. It, it's a chair, and you think of it as a thing that you sit in. There's a story attached with that chair. Similarly, you live a Christian life, a Muslim life, a Buddhist life. Uh, Hindu life. In, in the case of me, the big, two biggest things that um, philosophies that kind of influence me, to be honest now, I mean, I'd say Christianity still is a philosophy that influences me, but it's not my whole world. I would say that 
say that Stoicism and utilitarianism, that these ideologies also um, kind of not only influence the way that I analyze the world, but it influences the way that the world is. That it's not just a prism on which I see the world. It's, it, 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 it affects the very way that the world, that reality is experienced by me. So when you grow up in a religion and you, you're given this reality, and mind you, it's a good reality. I mean, it's, it has its shortcomings, as I mentioned, with um, like how the Bible treats homosexuality, but then also like how religion can lead to paranoia, like the Salem witch trials, how religion can lead to scarlet letters being put on people. You know, And a lot of people say these are perverted forms of Christianity and so on, but still, with all the negatives that Christianity gives, I mean, there's a, reason that, there's a reason that it's the biggest world religion. It's because it's a good world to live in, um, in many ways. Um, it's a comforting one. It's a, it's a world where the injustices, and for many people, particularly people that believe in, in, he, in like hell, and we could go into this is a whole other conversation about like what your conception of justice is, but this idea that all wrongs get righted. And I think what's, what's more important to people even think than thinking that all wrongs get righted um, is the fact that people who are wronged get restored, right? That, you know, your wife that died of cancer, you're going to see her again. Your, your, your you know, 12-year-old son that died, you're going to see that, you're going to see him or her again, and so on and so forth. That it really is painful once you really live in that world and acknowledge it is true to leave in it, that, you know, you're not going to do it easily. You're going to have a cognitive dissonance. And this goes with any religion you have, you know, like, you know, if, if you don't, if you're Christian, you're watching this, you can apply this same, I guess, analysis to other religions, that whether you believe you're a Hindu, you believe will be reincarnated and live a new life. You know, you believe that um, this, that, the other thing. Um, it, it, there's, if you see something that seems contradictory of it, if it, it you're going to shove it off because you don't want to keep the, that, view of that, the, that view of the world because that view of the world also connects you um, to others. And I think part of the reason that I'm well, – and I do agree with you that I personally would be in a rare percentage of people in terms of people who got my upbringing to – although both my brother and sister – are non-religious. My brother's agnostic. My sister's more eh, as I understand it. Um, but I mean, they're both not religious. But I, I do believe that you know most people in my upbringing would keep with it. I think part of the reason that I haven't kept with it is just because, like, I hate cognitive dissonance. I hate the idea that there's something in my brain that's contradictory. Then, I, then I'm just letting it exist so I can keep my, keep my ideas, right? Keep, and I'm like, no, I want, I want every uncomfortable – I'm of the opinion that reveal every uncomfortable truth there is to me. I want to know it. I want to know it now. You know, even there was one time – this is going to make me really sound like a weird person. But I remember it was like my – I think it was my sophomore year of college. It was one of those nights that Jake's, Jake was staying over at Lindsay's, which – now, nowadays, that's every single evening. But back in the day, that was like every other evening, you know, as sophomore year of college. Then I was like, got home, and like, I had some contradictory ideas in my head. And I just remember that I had nothing else to do tonight. I had no homework. I'm like, all right, 
I'm going to lay on my, on my futon over there. I'm going to think for two hours, where do I have cognitive dissonance? And try and uncover every area of my life where I have cognitive dissonance. For two hours, I stared at the ceiling and did that. But anyway, that is the rant. Um, probably the longest rant of the, 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 the podcast episode. But I think that's just kind of what drives me insane. What kind of drove me away from religion was my hatred of cognitive dissonance and how much it bothered me as an individual, um, letting contradictions steep in my mind. Um, so that's just my story, but I, I understand that most people, they have a higher tolerance for cognitive dissonance or just saying, I don't know when it comes to a contradiction, but still believing in the main thing, I guess. But most pe people can deal with that dissonance and would just rather keep that embeddedness to their community and their reality alive so yeah that's kind of my view there yeah um i i agree with pretty much everything you've just said uh i would also say um to to your uh cognitive dissonance uh story that you gave you know i think most people probably don't have the same story as you because when I think a lot of people when they experience cognitive dissonance like you said they're able to deal with it like you want to face it because you're in a pursuit of truth and you're in a pursuit of like trying to be objective and all of these things but I think that's mm -hmm. a minority I think most people mm -hmm. will try to just ignore it you know there are several ways we cope with cognitive dissonance and that's just to justify our initial like one belief over the other just to believe it and then forget about the other just to have comfort because we want to try to avoid mm. all discomfort rather than just facing it but uh one thing i wanted to ask you was and then yeah and it has to relate to your story um of you being able to you know leave your religion and then still find meaning in life like i consider you to be like a happy like or like you know a neutral person because i know you're stoic so you you know you're not happier anything you just like stoics can be happy that's some but yeah. yeah but not like you know at a you know like typically they're not like like i'm constantly happy it was that's not really possible to begin mm -hmm. with but but uh, you know you're not you know nihilistic or anything like you know you know you do a lot you're involved very involved in things and i think that that um is not always the case for many people who do leave religion and it's like do, do you believe that there could be like negative consequences to people leaving religion clearly there are but like as a society at large like do you think people getting away from religion will like in a practical sense because not all people are like you i would say most people aren't like you you know intellectually driven they're very emotional and things mm -hmm. so yeah, i just want i'd be curious to hear your response to that yeah um honestly i see it it's a lot more easy for me to argue to myself all right i'm going to not be christian and I'm just going to love my neighbor as myself, but all this stuff about the metaphysics, I'm not dealing with it. I don't think, and, and using this Bible as a moral guide, I can argue against that for myself. But in terms of arguing against religion entirely as an institution, for all people, all people aren't me. And I can understand there are costs um, to a, leaving a religion, mainly people feeling atomized because they don't have the community. That's one cost. People do, a lot of people do become atomized. Many of the atheist YouTubers I talked about probably do. But they find, can find community other, otherwhere and get that atomization, less atomization. But there's just a general emptiness and dreading death. 
There's that. I think thirdly, there's a lack of moral groundedness, if you will. If you believe that religion gives a better, gives a moral grounding, where people don't have something that they worship, they eventually drift to some stupid vice. Then I could see that religion, you're leaving religion is, is hurtful. I can, I can see where you're coming from because I believe that's what you believe. And to be honest with you, I just don't know. I don't see all the variables, the big picture. I think there is a way to raise people um, to live a moral, secular life. Um, and I think, to be honest, there needs to be more community, more churches, if you will, for secular people in the United States. Like, that, to, what extent, to, an ex to a great extent, that's what the Unitarian Universalist Church is. I mean, they welcome both religious people, people who believe in a God and agnostics and say, all right, let's be hippies and talk about living a good life. But, you know, I think there are people that can, there's a lot of ways that the community, I feel like of the three problems I mentioned, the community aspect of it, I feel like is the least worrisome. People can find community elsewhere. Um, but, and there's so many ways to create community. I don't worry so much about that first one. The second one about fearing or dealing with death, I don't know about that one. I think, in my personal view, I think there will always be um, religion. Because I think for the average person, it makes it easier to deal with death. And I don't think, no matter how progressive, secular, humanistic societies get, that essential urge and the fact that, I don't know, just stoicism regarding death, stoicism does it for me, but it just doesn't do, any, do enough for people to make them feel good enough to just wake up in the morning and keep going. Like I remember about a couple years ago, um, went to Guardian Angels Church where my parents go to church. And after mass, this one woman who was a mom of a fellow person it was in my grade in my high school I'm not going to say who the mom was let's just name the person Linda in fact I don't even know what her first name is I just know her by Mrs. last name of the, you know but um, let's say Linda is her name like she was coming in like she was talking to my parents and just crying sobbing about how her mom her father I forget for sure died just crying about how, like, she, and she said, I don't know how people without a God can deal with this, without our God can deal with this. I mean, that's a lot. It is a lot to deal with because, I mean, it, it's, 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 if, if this is it and you die, then, yeah, you just don't have your parent anymore. You don't have your wife anymore if they die. You don't have your brother, sister, um, and that's tough. And what does the Stoic have to say about that? Well, cherish the memory you have of them. Start loving new people. And for me, that's enough. For, for some people, that's just devastating because they cannot live without that person. Um, and so that religion improves things. And so in terms of this worry that religion will go away um, forever, um, I don't know. I don't know about that. It actually, maybe it could. I mean, like, think about this goes back to how little we know. Think about, go back to 1500. Go, go to, back to, Brit, to, to, to Britain in 1500, 1600, 1700. 
and tell people that a third of people 300 years from now will be agnostic. Not, will, Jesus will not be a part of their lives. They think you're nuts, right? And look how fast all that changed. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. Maybe it will go away. Will it make society worse? I just think it depends on what um, society then binds itself around. I think if the society, if this, it depends, and this goes to what's the central organizational principle behind society. Um, you know, uh, this kind of, we're really going off topic, but I, I mean, I think it's interesting the ways we go off, particularly that I go off topic. You're not going off topic much, but I hear people, particularly people on the left in the internet space, you know, they say that, oh, our society's only central organizing principle is in the neoliberal regime that we live in, is that our, our, our central organizing principle is profit, profit, utility, material maximization, and that we need other central organizing principle. We need a different one because that one's going to run us into the ground. And I agree that if that's the only principle that drives society, that will run us into the ground. That, that doesn't make you a full-blown communist, but I think I don't know if there's, and I think the, the, the best central organizing principle still is the one that Jesus gave, which is love your neighbor as yourself, right? But the, and the question is, can you submit to that principle without believing in being rewarded for it in heaven? Believing in, in, in nothing particularly after you die. Can you um, still be motivated to live that? I, I can. What motivates me? Because um, you talk to a lot of Christian people, they talk about why they love their neighbor like, as themselves. For them, it might be because they feel so much loved by God that they must extend that love forward, right? For me, I guess, it's just because I've been loved by so many great people, individual, individual humans, that that makes me want to extend that forward. That I don't really need any infinite or cosmic love to make me want to extend that forward. I think so long as you have that, and you have community, and you have people studying philosophy and such, and still studying what the ancients said, because I think there is a lot of good stuff in ancient wisdom, that you can have still good society moving forward. So I'm not, I'm not incredibly worried. There's this way, there's this really nostalgic way of looking in the world and like comparing how people can be shitty on social media today in 2021 versus, you know, how people were more decent in 1950. But then let's look at how different people act in the 1950s and 60s when it comes to racism, sexism, homophobia. And this is, I guess, with a more left-leaning side of me comes out where I think in all three of those things, we have made real improvements. Um, that I don't think the world is necessarily getting horrible. I think it's getting better in some ways, worse in other ways, that to the point where I don't see a um, cataclysmic shift coming. Economically, maybe, more so, but, but in terms of socially or religion, in relation to religion, not so much. So the central question to me becomes with whether the people leaving Christianity causes people to become worse, is when you leave Christianity, what purpose are you serving? Why are you living your life? If it's a good purpose, 
a purpose that, that you know, that exemplifies virtuousness, which I think is a, it's a real quality we can observe throughout history. What makes a virtuous person? What makes a shitty person? These things are real things that we can observe by just seeing how people's stories play out. Um, yeah, and I think if, if you're serving something good after you leave, I'm not so much worried. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that issue? Yeah, I personally, um, I, see, I see a lot of what you say similarly. Um, but I, I honestly just have a difficult time imagining a world without religion. And that's only because, and, and I'll admit, my sources are definitely biased. And my, my understanding of the history on the subject is totally limited, limited and by biased sources. But when I look at a lot of the, um, the, the ancient civilizations, like, you know, take Greece and Rome, for example. Like, I, in my opinion, like, when I've looked at those, I see a clear rejection of religion mm-hmm. and then a kind of moral relativism sort of comes into play and you have weird taboos that are become accepted um, and then a complete loss of any collective um, culture. Like that's kind of like, I don't know, like that's kind of, and I, I've read that. It's like, I'm, I didn't come up with that, obviously. Like I read that somewhere and I haven't studied the history of Rome or Greece enough to really know the full in-depth history, but like there's at least examples that you could make that argument for. And like, and I worry that that would, that would be what happened. If, and, and, but the thing is, religion would have to go away first. And would that happen? I don't know. I don't know if religion would ever go away. But if it did go away, I would be very concerned. Because although there would be community, I, I, I certainly don't believe you could have a nation. Like, I don't believe, like, I don't, I can't see, like, the United States as the idea that it, it was founded on and what it is now would exist because you would have so much moral relativism. And I think that, you know, so many different factions would emerge. Like you would have people of different cultures and different beliefs would, you know, would become collective and and live together and and be happy and all of that, but it would change things completely. And, and whether that's good or bad. And I think, I think society would continue. Like, I don't think like it's going to erupt in flames or anything like that, but it would continue, but I think it would be different. And in my opinion, not as good. Um, And a lot of that is because how do you like rationalize, like how, like how does man, like, how do you, like, you know, I'm trying to think, think of how to word this, but like, you know, a God is an absolute, a man, like we don't trust man. Like we don't, I mean, there's no absolute to man. And so like, I have a hard time believing that a fallible human being can lead or like these principles created by man can guide an entire civilization. Like you said, you know, you mentioned stoicism and and other philosophies, but we have desires and there are philosophies that are extremely crooked, corrupt and immoral, in my opinion, like that have existed. Nazism, for example, Mm -hmm. I mean, so many different ones. I mean, the idea that, you know, racialized slavery like that once existed that was accepted by man and like and although slavery was allowed in the bible it was nothing i mean the people who try to like say like oh like god would have been okay with like the african like transatlantic slave 
trade. trade. I don't think that's true because what happened there was so different than what existed in the biblical days, which, which was mostly indentured servitude for people who were poor, who would either have been an indentured servant or would have probably died or just or, had a subsistence farm. Or oftentimes like, the Israelites would conquer, like the Canaanites or some other tribe. And it, as a just a tradition at that time in history, as is every practically every nation in that region. Right, that's not true. There's probably there's, there's definitely exceptions, but most, as I understand it, peoples at that time. If you were going to conquer another people, you're going to make the soldiers you catch your slave. It's just what you. It's just what you do. And then you that. But I, as I recall in the Bible, most slaves eventually, after so many, like got they got set freed. It was not servitude. indefinite. Yeah, right. Like, well, it's, like different than, it's different than indentured servitude. It's different. Yeah, indentured yeah. servitude is like and this is a joke I've made. Like if the apocalypse happens and I'm like at Philmont Scout Ranch where I work during the summer and like oh the, all the grocery stores are empty and like the food, global food supply supply chains collapse one out of three people are dying of a contagious disease or whatever. Indentured servitude is like me going up to a buffalo farmer and saying, look, don't shoot me. Give me some of your buffalo meat. I will be your slave for four years if I could just live with you and eat, and eat, your, and eat your produce, right? That's, that's, that's indentured servitude. That's an agreement. It's like, look, right. you give me X, Y, Z, I'll be your slave. Um, conquering another tribe and then making them your slave. That's not indentured servitude. So there was no. real, real slavery. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 very different than what existed in America though. I mean, yeah. And, and but anyhow, like my, my point was really just, I, it would concern me that philosophy and man would be guiding other men. And like, I just don't, I cannot imagine how, I think, I think at a short term, mm-hmm you know things could be okay but ultimately i think it's not sustainable and i think that what what christianity i mean think about before the times before christianity i mean how absolutely barbaric the world was and it is barbaric now i mean but then, yeah but like i don't know if christianity was the one thing that i, mean, you know, I think it, it was one of many things that made humanity better i think of, the enlightenment and, and you know i think the enlightenment did a lot to make humanity better i think islam i mean islam's ter- like okay well, this is hmm, this is controversial there's the islamic world is filled with terrors today and it's and it's much more fundamentalist in the christian world and it's but you go back like there was an era there was an era and this is with a very rough understanding of history i'm i could be much better in understanding history rather than just and i've read some historic historical books but like i read one really good historical book over the summer that my brother gave me about the history of the entire enlightenment it was very good but i don't know too much about the islamic world but i basically know that around the time of the crusades it could be argued rather definitively that the Christian world was much crueler than the Islamic world around the time of the Crusades. Um, and then now it's kind of, in my opinion, it, it flipped, but there's a lot of things behind that. It's not just, it's a whole thing. I think, you know, empires fall, they, come, they collapse, they rise up and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, Islam, the point is Islamic world contributed a lot it was an improvement on the nomadic cultures that preceded it. Um, even though there was a lot of terrible things that came with the Islamic world as well, because it was also, it was, you know, um, just like Judaism was a religion with, with Israelites that, for, like binding together as a people through conquest. There's a lot of conquest 
at the beginning of the history of the Muslim, of, you know, Islamic world. So there's bad parts, good parts, but I think there's not one thing that made the world better. There's many things that made the world better. And I think Christianity was a key piece in the overall puzzle. And yeah, I don't, um, I don't know, like, like I said, I don't know what a secular society would look like. I mean, look to Western Europe, I guess, to see like the closest thing to, because I mean, you're, you're, you're getting towards majorities of people being atheists in many countries. I don't know what the stats are in Britain, but I don't, you know, but like, I know like, the, the, like all the Nordic nations that like the Bernie Sanders types tend to really worship I mean, just not that or praise rather. They don't anyway. That's that's really a straw man. But they, you know, like 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 they're like majority secular, and they don't seem like the shittiest of places. I think there's always bad stuff in the human. There's always bad humans. There's always terrible people, no matter what society you create. So I'm not personally worried. Just looking at looking at what um, many parts of Europe are looking like. Um, that that's one but ultimately i feel like every society eventually collapses um and you know i um but i don't think you know it, it's not like you think you say in america i think america is built on judeo christian values to a great extent but a great extent it's also just it's a it's a government at least it, it is is based around the ideas of the enlightenment and i don't think that's a bad set of ideas to bind a state behind and i don't know what i, th I don't think anything lasts forever because i think people all things eventually rot and die and, and and new things come after things die no nation will last forever so i'm not really worried about nations lasting forever because i don't think any nation does i'm just worried about what i can control in terms of religion yeah yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree, I guess. Um, I mean, in regard to Europe, I mean, it's too soon to tell, in my opinion, like what, and like you said, I, I do too agree that the end result of all civilization, like all nations is, uh, is failure. I mean, because like, the idea is to change them, to make them better. And a lot of the times you forget to preserve the things just out of ignorance or, you know, whatever, you forget to preserve, or you just don't preserve the things that made it what it is and you ultimately end up destroying it. I think that's, we're changing it so, so drastically that maybe we don't collapse necessarily, like make things get terrible, but that it's unrecognizable though. I think at the end of the day, it will be unrecognizable, like, you know, to our founders and it probably already is. I mean, well, yeah, our society today is unrecognizable to people um, in 1945 right when we got out of the, I mean, we, a lot of things are recognizable. Not a lot of things come from that period pre-1945. The whole, the, the whole World War II New Deal regime, right? But so many things have changed that makes it, that it's only slightly recognizable to the people from then, you know, who died on, at that year, to the people in 1800, to people in 1600. You know, the world changes. So it, it's, yeah. Kind of remind, yeah. What? Were you oh, no, 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 go. I no, I had really mind. nothing else to say. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, well, I guess that, uh, I guess in my opinion, you know, in order to 
you know, have something great, you have to all, not, not only Christianity, but also what I, you know, my personal opinion of like conservative values, like coming from the place that good things are much easier to destroy than they are to create. Like, that's like my foundation of kind of like mm-hmm. my conservative thought is that simple idea. Yeah. And, I, and that, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I just, I, so I think it's a common, this is obviously like to, to pinpoint, okay, one thing Christianity made the whole world better. It was barbaric Christianity better. And then, like, you know, it's like obviously like those are oversimplifications and the idea that, okay, if Christianity goes away or religion, that the whole world collapses. Like, I think that there's just so much, we're just complex. The world's complex. Yeah. And I kind of get where you're coming from. Like, I was having this conversation on Jake's podcast the other day about, am I liberal, progressive, conservative? And I said that my, all my beliefs could be said to be either, like, libertarian slash progressive, mixture of those types of beliefs on all economic or social matters. I don't have any belief that's distinctly conservative. But I thought about that after I said that statement on his podcast. Like, how true is that? Like, what, what themes, just put aside policies for the moment. What themes in my outlook on the world are conservative? And I'd say a couple in the sense that the one thing about me that's conservative, at least, is I am more afraid of our society losing the riches that it has built than I am at all hopeful or excited for or driven by anything that our society could possibly gain. I mean, even with all the horrors of our society, racial inequality, um, lack of rights and protections for different, all the different minorities in our society or economic pain and strife and lack of access to healthcare, education, this, that, the other thing. Even with all those things, I think that the things that we have built, um, I just am more, I guess, afraid of those things being lost or destroyed than anything that could be possibly gained. Um, it kind of reminds me when I was um, riding with riding in the car a couple of years ago with my friend Rose Ben Porath. Uh, she was one of the people who I sat with at lunch um, every day in sophomore, junior, senior high school, well, just sophomore and junior year. But when we talked about religion and politics every single day at lunch, she's, she was uh, transgender and she actually passed away this, this past April. Um, and, but we talking, and she was a full-blown communist. Um, and like, she talked about how she would, if there was a communist revolution to overtake the American state, that if she thought that, that the force she could be a part of was big enough, she would be part of that military force to overtake the government. And that sounded batshit crazy to me, to be honest with you. Um, and I was telling her, I was like, look at, because we were driving around I forget what quaint small town in Ohio we were driving around. And I was like, look at all this, all these businesses, houses, like all these things that like are so interdependent on one another. You want like, and I, I guess you want all, but I didn't actually, actually I didn't tell her this because I think I just thought this in my head actually. I think I just actually changed the conversation. Um, like how, like, like, like starting from the ground up with all of this, like, I don't know. I just, I'm skeptical of, of it. That's why I don't believe in revolution. I'm, I, when it comes to my politics, I believe in reform and not revolution. All kinds of people, they say, oh, it would be better if the whole thing just burns down. We need to start over. We need to take all these people out and just, well, 
and I think the one lesson of the French Revolution, and again, I am not a good student of history. I, I'm terrible. I, I took AP Euro in high school, and no, I took AP World in high school, not Euro. And I took some history. I read some books, but the one big takeaway that I got from the French Revolution was you take out a dictator, you, you might often get a worse dictator. I think there's some there's other more recent stories in our nation's history that kind of exemplify that principle too, that you take away one stable state, no matter how terrible it is, and you completely destroy it and put something else in. That something else you put in doesn't always work out so well. You know, almost never does. Almost never does. I think that the history would kind of shows that it's much more difficult to have a successful revolution and. Than not a not successful revolution. Most revolutions are, are failures. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, it's yeah. So I guess that's just a big theme. I mean, I want to improve the world, but you know, it's preservation still is a big part of my thought process. I just don't think that the modern Republican Party does the conservative movement in our country, at least, really does that much to preserve much of anything. I mean, all Donald Trump represented to me was just constant destruction of norms, of civility. Economically, you people yap about the national debt. I mean, these tax cuts weren't offset by spending cuts. If you, I'm not going to go into the economics of is the national debt a concern and so on and so forth. If you didn't really do anything that much on that issue, um, you know, like the, the trillion dollar spending bill, the the Biden administration is about to pass was something that Trump promised but just never could get done. So spending-wise, he's not that much different. He doesn't cons- like he isn't conserving. To me, like 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 right like only a couple decades after what happened with Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, he exhibits terrible I guess moral behavior in his life and his relationships with women. And like that was a big thing. But what the conservative party was about is we need good, strong moral leaders at the helm. Like imagine like, well, like it's something that Bill Maher said. Imagine if a Democrat did like did all the things that Trump did while he was married with his wife and so on and so forth. How they he, that Democrat would be treated by conservative media? So and it's just the like the whole media ecosystem, the the lack of just understanding, the constant um, trolling, and then the I mean the lack of faith he instilled in our election system. Um, I think all those things really dis- were destructive. And then on any other issue you could name, he's, he's either, he's, he's not, did nothing particular really to preserve the core of what this nation is. Not, not that you could convince me. I, I agree almost 100%. And I think the Republican Party at large when it does preserve things that preserves the status quo and the things that people hate the most, like the the, the normal person hates the most, they continually preserve and then change things that the normal person enjoys, like social security, largely a popular program. People don't want to see that touched. And and this is, Things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, how much they're part of the fabric of American society and how much people love them is part of the reason I, in recognizing that and understanding that, is part of the reason I nixed being a libertarian myself. I think it's part of the reason you consider yourself a conservative and not a libertarian. 
mm-hmm. as well. Right. Yeah. No, but I, yeah, definitely. That's an interesting discussion. We have to, we could do a whole nother podcast episode in a couple of months, just talking about politics. Yeah, certainly. Let's see. Is there anything more we want to talk about um, religion? Um, I saw one thing we didn't mention about religion. I think it's just important in this broader conversation about religion was the fact that you know, while the United States is becoming less religious, it's just, it's just the United States and the, and, you know, and Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, you know, it's just the, the wealthy, the well, the, you know, the wealthiest, wealthiest and whitest of nations are the ones that are becoming less religious. Literally every other nation, it's about neutral or it's increasing, like China, for example. Um, it, religiosity is only increasing by the year um, in that nation. So it's, and that's why, you know, like, um, and, the, and, and uh, I, I think the big theme we can get, we can take away with this conversation is that there's so many variables at play. Things we cannot anticipate in terms of technology, politics, historical developments. Um, that we cannot possibly know how religious the United States will be in 2150 or in 2300, because um, it's a complex system. Like the economy, you can't tell when a recession is going to happen. Like the weather, you cannot tell for sure that it's going to rain tomorrow. Um, these are complex systems with many variables. You can't know, but you can have control over the variables in the system that you're a part of. And I guess this is the last part of our conversation that I want to get to, is you are a person, a convert to Christianity, really, I mean, for being disinterested to being really having a strong faith. As a now Christian, as a person of the church, um, that thinks the church is a good thing for American society, an essential thing in society that keeps our society together, as you see young people leave the church for various reasons. What do you think that the church, and by the church, I mean pretty much all Christian denominations, because we're going to talk, because we're in the United States, Christianity is the main thing. All Christian denominations in the States, what do you think Christian denominations need to do more of um, to keep this attrition from happening? Okay. Yeah, actually, that's, that's a perfect question to conclude on, because I actually had a I had some things I wanted to say that relate directly to this. So there was a survey done by a think, a Christian think tank, and that is that concerns itself with preserving Christianity, which clearly, and also concerns concerns itself largely with people leaving the church. And I think that it's like a good source, although it is a Christian think tank. It's a pretty good source because at the end of the day, their goal is to actually discover why people are leaving so they can bring them back. And there are six main reasons that people claim to leave the church. And I'll go through all six and then I'll kind of just give them a little spiel. Yeah. So number one reason, and these aren't, these aren't in any order as like how many people said, like, like largely they're all relatively uh, equal, like 25 to like 30% of people like say these are one of the reasons why they left. So one is Christians seem overprotective. And by that, they kind of mean um, like 
they criticize their lifestyles too much like oh like staying out late or homosexuality things like that overprotect that, that's what they meant by saying overprotective um oh and then another one is actually which we already discussed is they like teens and people that are 20 somethings uh, experience christianity as as being shallow they experience it as being shallow um uh, one, one of the main reasons also is being antagonistic to science. People feel like it's antagonistic to science, uh, views on sexuality. And uh, the fifth reason is they see Christianity as exclusive. They feel like, um, and, and with the youth people being pushed to be more tolerant and accepting, uh, they feel forced to like, choose, like you said, that you had cognitive dissonance. Similarly to these people feel like they're forced to choose between having faith in a God and like their friends. Um, and then they, and then the sixth and final reason was that church feels unfriendly to those who doubt, which I would agree. And like, so like, I thought those were actually like six pretty good reasons. And I believe that that's pretty accurate. And so I think largely like these are very like manageable issues, like as a church, like seeming overprotective, like I think a lot of Christians don't know how to express and articulate their beliefs or the, or the Bible. So if it's just like, Oh, why can't I do that? Because God said so, you know, like, and like kids nowadays, like they're open, they want more nuance and like, like people are just continually be more aware and more like, I wouldn't say smart, but like in a way, like they're more scientifically minded. And so they need a different, you know, approach, like, rather than the, the, what worked for them, which was, oh, my mom and dad just told me that's because God said so, and that worked for me. Like, that, that that's just not going to be the approach going forward. Having a shallow experience of Christianity, we've already kind of got into that, so I don't need to go into that. Antagonistic to science, I think that rather than being, which openly antagonistic to science, which many churches are, they reject science, and, like, openly criticize scientists, and, like, you know, scholarship that comes out, that's what they feel is antagonistic to Christianity. I think they should take more of an approach that maybe someone like Hugh Ross does, or even like an approach, like kind of like what I take is that when mm -hmm. like the, the science does start to um, be antagonistic to Christianity, sort of come at it with the approach, like, look, God is powerful. We are limited. Like it's hard to understand. Maybe we're just not meant to understand that, or whatever. Like rather than just completely rejecting it, which so many Christians do. Like, oh, climate change isn't real, you know, because you know, you know, it's ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. They have like no, you know, that's not that's not getting across to kids nowadays. Like mm -hmm. society has changed. And then views on sexuality. Again, those are what they are. I think, in my opinion, stressing that at the foundation of Christianity is love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's more important than, because we all sin and all sins are equal except for one. And that's using God's name in vain. Um, but outside of that, all sins are equal. And so it's like, well, if you're, if you're not going to hate me or judge me, why would you hate and judge somebody else for just another, what you think is a sin. And I think that we just need to be more accepting of people in general and like more loving and showing that and be more open about our love rather than, Oh, I love everyone, but I don't do anything to actually show it or, you know, prove that I, I actually love people. Christianity is as exclusive. Yeah. I don't know how to fix that. So many churches are exclusive and unwelcoming to people. Um, and I think most churches are welcoming, but many are not. And, I, I, and I, I know in the Catholic church, this is just one thought I wanted to share. I yeah. mean, 
I'm actually being agnostic. I'm still somewhat partial to the Catholic Church just because it was the one I've raised in. I right. like it more, but I think the one of the weaknesses of the Catholic Church is that you're a newcomer, you come into Catholic Church, and then immediately people start chanting things in unison. You're like, what the what the hell? What are they saying? And it's just like they're part of the club. They're saying all these things in an order, and it doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't feel I, – I could imagine not being raised Catholic, having a Catholic mass not feel that welcoming because you get into it, and people just like are just talking. Like, people are just doing so many different things that you don't understand whatsoever that I would honestly say that you, the, the Catholicism in particular, like the way to get into Catholicism probably wouldn't be get going into mass because so much of the elements of mass just don't make sense to a person that's not in it. But if you but going to a youth group or a Bible study perhaps would be more of a way to include people. But yeah, no, agreed, agreed, big time. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the last component of that was just um, uh, being um, what was it? Something about oh, being unfriendly to people who doubt. Mm -hmm. And that's I mean that's simple fix. And I do believe all of those issues do exist and they're real. And I think that if we could work on that because the young base of churches i know my church in particular is very weak and i I've, I've heard that from a lot of people that their youth groups and things like that continue to shrink and shrink and shrink and that churches are going to struggle here in the next 20 30 years when they have no youth um so these are real issues that need to be worked on and i think they're extremely manageable i think that uh I think the future could be positive for for them, we, we, but we have to change with the times. So. Yeah, what's well, interesting? You have to change with the times because change, change change our um, our strategies. Strategies, not, not the principle. We don't change not, the word. Change the they don't change the principles. Yeah, this yeah. kind of reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote about religion um, changing with the times, which I mean I don't. I agree. I, I, I thought C.S. Lewis was a brilliant man, one of the, actually my favorite Christian thinkers. But I, I, at the end of the day, I, I, dis, I, dis, I disagree with him. But I think he was right when he said that, like, a religion that only changes with the times, that only goes along with popular culture, that doesn't stand for anything um, as popular culture is changing in one way. Um, it inevitably becomes a weak religion was basically that he, what he argued, that people are not going to follow um, a religion that just, see, that just echoes what the secular world is saying. Because if the religion just echoes what the secular world is saying, then wh why do you need the religion, right? You know, religion, and, 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 and like, this reminds me of another, like, of an article I was reading um, in, I forget it was Pew Research Center, Washington Post, Guard, The Guardian. I've been reading a lot of stuff lately. But basically, the article was talking about, and I, I didn't save the article, unfortunately, but it was talking about like how many evangelical preachers believe that, because evangelical is one of the most, you know, like, you know, just um, unwavering, I would say, the Christian denominations. For all its weaknesses, it's very unwavering in a lot of its claims and beliefs. It doesn't change with the times so much. Um, I mean, all churches change with the times, at least culturally. I mean, but not as much. 
especially when it comes to principles. They were in the article was talking about how like many evangelical pastors had a thesis that what people want is strong authoritative religion. That it's the more wishy washy religions, um, the ones that just change. You know, they're the ones that actually lose people because people don't take them seriously. But then the article went on to say that well, this that this thesis is being disproven because now even the evangelicals are seeing their numbers drop. And now, in fact, you go back a couple decades, it was more liberal denominations saw higher drops in people. But in recent decades, the evangelicals have seen some of the most precipitous drops, as I've seen. Because, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of being on a spectrum from too loose to too, I guess, strict. Um, but, I don't know, you talk about strict churches... The Mormons, I'll tell you. I, I mean, I love them. I mean, you know, like they are about as strict as it gets. They go to 4 a.m. like teachings every every day and then get sent to public school. They do a two-year mission after they graduate high school. I mean, that is strict. And and Mormon, I mean, Mormonism is growing in the U.S. Well, like every, the you look fastest at, growing religion in the entire world, actually. Entire world, yeah. As a, as a percentage of its population. Like in sheer numbers, it's not. But as a percentage, like... And yeah. the rate that's growing at is is the fastest growing. It, the rate has slowed down, but it's still yeah. faster than hardly anything else. Mm-hmm. It's like still one percent a year. The Mormons go hard, man. I tell you, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe they're right. I mean, I don't know. I, there's something like elegant or satisfying with the Mormons being right and the rest of us being wrong, <laughs> because I don't know. I just kind of like it when everybody's wrong. You know, kind of reminds me of that South Park episode where like they're. You've seen the South Park episode where it's all the people are laying out there in the afterlife and this, this guy stands up and like, oh, him, oh, him, oh, him. And everybody gets quiet, all right. And the correct religion was the Mormons. That's right. <laughs> the Mormons got it right. That's funny. That's really funny, actually. Yeah, I think that's because it's just so unexpected because yeah. <laughs> most people would expect it to be something else. They, they, you know, yeah, it's like, and everybody's, it's just the, it's the most uncommon one, or Zoroastrianism, <laughs> that, that one's the correct one, actually. Yeah. But, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's I, funny, though. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. We, we're obviously not going to solve every religious problem in this two-hour conversation. Nope. Nope, but yeah, I'm kind of, I don't know. Honestly, I'm getting towards being... Uh, checked out. I don't mean, I'm, there's Me other things I wanted to check to, to, to discuss. Like, the whole idea of, this is going right back into something very deep, but the whole idea in Christianity of Jesus saving someone from mm-hmm. sin and uh, what that means. Um, uh, I might just save that for another conversation. No, I know our, my, our, our friend Theo, I don't know, have you met Theo, actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, I forget... Yeah. I forget what friends I've brought together in the past, but yeah. Theo, Theo's, Theo's coming on in, in four weeks, um, us, us to discuss um, economics in society. But he, he was really, he was kind of jealous because he wanted to talk about, he was jealous of you because he wanted to come on and talk about religion. Oh, he should have did it with, with me. We just yeah, we, I could it. have, you know, but I'm also having him in on two weeks. Well, you know, I, I, mean, I don't know. I'm eventually will pay, pay for the, how much does it cost on Zoom to, do like the three person, uh, I don't, or do more than two. I don't. I don't know. That's, that's not our audience wouldn't care about that. But um, yeah, and maybe I could just talk on my podcast with Theo. I could talk with him for an hour and a half about the economics discipline, and then thirty minutes. All right, all right, Theo, 
what does it mean for Jesus to save me from my sins? You know, and <laughs> yeah, like I feel like he would he would be able to answer that probably better than I would because he's been part of the church much longer than me. All right. Well, yeah, that's cool. Um, I don't. Know, I want to end on some really deep and philosophical like quote or, or thing to say. Um, yeah, I, I just one last thing just I like to mention. This reminds me of this um about our time and our moment. Um, you know, I watched this video of, of it was Peter Berger, um, uh, sociologist of religion, and Ross Duthat, that um, Duthat, Duthat, that New York Times conservative columnist, one of the, the New York Times like most prominent columnists alongside Paul Krugman and stuff. Um, was he, he was he, he, they were talking about you know um, how there, there was this, there was this thesis in sociology of religion of um, the fact that we're converging onto a secular age, um, that we're, everybody will lose religion. And they were arguing that, no, you're looking at, at the world at large, we're certainly not converging on a secular age. Maybe the, U, maybe the white and wealthy countries are, but the rest of the world really isn't um, so much. And so, so basically, and I remember they talk about in the video that, well, no, we're not converging upon a secular age, but we're living in, and we're not really converging on anything else but a pluralistic age. And I think um, the novelty of um, the age we're living in is the fact that, like, think about most eras in human history, right? Most eras in human history, everybody you live with, you talk with, your entire life shares the exact same religion as you, the exact same view of what happens to you when you die exact same view about of who created you, what the sexual norms are, so on and so forth. Um, all these things are like set and everybody around you believes this thing. That's most of human history, most societies, most societies even today in our world. But what's unique about Western societies, but also other societies moving forward is how um, the diversity you live with in daily life. Not that there hasn't been diversity in, pa in, in the past, um, with other countries, um, you know, with Christians, Muslims, Jews interacting with each other, but just the fact that like most people nowadays live in a world where every day they interact with a Jew, an atheist, a Christian, a Muslim. And so what does that mean, you know, in terms of what, how we relate to each other in this crazy age? We're like, I don't know, we just don't share as much of a reality. And I don't know what, I guess if I'm going to formulate this as a question, because you are my guest, kind of want you to have the last word. Um, I don't know what, um, what do you think are like, um, I know Peter Berger in that YouTube video I saw, he said there's a benefit living this age, even from the perspective of being a, a Christian, that it's actually good. It's, it's better to be a Christian in an age where you're surrounded by atheists and Muslims and Jews, because these can, people can test your faith. They can, when everybody believes it, it doesn't become an issue for you. It, it becomes, as going back to ontology, you don't question the, like, the ontology, the very nature, the core of your religion, the, the, the very being of your religion. You just, it's just, it's just a part of the water you swim in. You don't, the fi a fish doesn't think about the water it swims in. In fact, when a fish is swimming, I mean, fishes don't think in general, like we're in words like we do. Um, but like, if, like, you know, it's like, you tell a fish what water is, and it was like a human, it would ask, well, what's water? 
you know, because it, it's swimming in it, it doesn't recognize the thing itself. And I guess, what do you think? Do you think that you talk about religion being important for societal cohesion, um, that it's good for the society as a whole for that society to share religion? In the case of the United States, that religion we mostly share still is Christianity. That, that creates religion cohesion, and that cohesion is good. But from the perspective of the individual Christian, this is your last question of the day. Do you think that that Christianity in the long run, or Christianity for, for the individual, is made better by having this discohesion, this pluralism? Brandon? So I would say, sorry, it was a little oh. bit of a yeah. um, lag. Um, I would say that uh, I, I largely would probably have to disagree with uh, Peter on that. Although I do think there are benefits and many benefits to diversity, uh, especially in regard to religion. And I, I do think that a lot of the time, <sighs> this us versus them, and I, I don't know a better way to put it I'll, outside of that, that mentality does seem, tend to strengthen your beliefs you know but um but also i think that what we've seen for christianity more largely this diversity in thought and this this culture that is more relative like there there's not a you know a set standard like it was before um i think that it's ultimately been to the demise of christianity because it's allowed people to feel especially with combined with diversity combined with the culture of like moral relativism and like this complete tolerance and acceptance. Um, I think that it's ultimately led to people leaving their religion hmm. and, 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 and the, to the weakening of Christianity more largely. I get that perspective completely. I understand it. Um, and I kind of agree with it, but as a person who isn't a Christian, the fact that it does weaken Christianity is not so much of as much of a concern for me. I think that diversity, um, if channeled correctly, I, I think that, that there, you have more potential in a society that's religiously diverse than a society that is religiously homogeneous. Um, but yeah, because um, maybe if it doesn't encourage Christianity specifically, it'll encourage at least critical thinking on all things and different perspectives on all things, which different perspectives and different tests should be able to make you think of the world more clearly. Um, I, I think it reminds me of a Bible verse that like, I will make you ready for heaven, like by putting you through the fire, like gold tested through the fire, right? You, by, by putting you through the burner, you make everything stronger. So here's what I would say, that if Christianity is the one true religion, um, that, it, that, you know, that putting it through the burner, if you will, exposing it to all these other religions, all these other opinions, having all these people, Muslims, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, atheists, immigrate in, or can, like, ha that I think if it is the true religion, it should stand the test of time that in the long run, interaction with these things I don't know, should, it, it should be able to withstand all of them. The church should, but. Hmm.
I don't know. But yeah. it's it's hard. There's a lot of again that could be a whole another discussion in itself. But you look tired. Um, I'm I guess I'm not tired. But oh, you oh I'm not I'm not tired. No, I don't. I, I'm not tired. Oh, okay. All right. I, I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Uh. I don't know what what else. What you want to talk about anything else, Brandon? Uh. No, I can't think of anything. All right. Well. Um. Uh, yeah, um, good, like, um, hmm. uh, good luck with USG this semester, man. Thank you. Um, tell, uh, Brooke and Nate I said hi. Um, will do. Share this podcast with them, too. Share it with all your friends, you know. I will. It, it will. It'll be good. Wait, is this, is this getting put on the podcast, what we're saying right here? Oh, yeah, it is. It, okay. I mean, it, I don't know. This podcast is not going to have a good, I don't, it's not going to have a poetic ending. I, I don't know. What like I want? I ask up some quote from Jesus or the Buddha. Um, let me just Google Buddha quotes quick, so we can end with a a quote by a Buddha. I'm gonna Google it. Let's see. I don't know why B- Buddha is just the person of choice. Just just cause. All right, hold on. Let me let me let me quote the Bible, then you quote Buddha. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Okay. Um, so my my most recent uh, Bible verse that like kind of stuck with me has been which I really like because it was one of those Bible verses that I wasn't exposed to. And it wasn't the vision I had of Christianity prior to reading the Bible. And it was this, that I think it was in Luke. I believe it was in uh, the gospel of Luke. And it was the parable of the tax collector and the the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, it says, those who exalt themselves before the Lord will be humbled, and those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. And I just liked that. It's a good, good message to live by. Uh huh. That's a good, yeah. Act humbly, mm-hmm. and you. I think hum, humility always bears rewards. Um. Uh, I guess this boot. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good quote. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think, and the quote that I think is relevant to what we've talked about today from the Buddha of the eight quotes I just saw um, would be that the mind is everything. What you think, you become. I think that's very relevant. Um, what religion you, if you don't have a religion, I think Christians are right when they say that when you stop worshiping God, you need to be conscious of what you are worshiping. Are you worshiping really false, really demonic idols, fame, power, money, you know? And so what you direct your life, what, what prism, as Zizek said, what ideology, what prism you see the world as, that's a big part of your mind, your outlook. And what, how your mind is, is how your mind becomes. I think that's another thought we can carry with us as this podcast uh, comes to an end. So uh, anyway, Brandon, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Um, if you liked um, uh, the Debts We Owe podcast, please subscribe to me on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube or share this. Uh, um, you can also support me on Patreon if you're, if, you're that, if, you're, if you're that inspired by this project at this moment. But and regardless, I'm just happy that we could share these ideas with you. And I think we had a good exchange of ideas today. It was at least fun for me, and I hope it's fun, was, was fun and engaging for anyone who listened to it. So uh, thank you for tuning into this episode with the Debts We Owe podcast. Um, 
uh, in, um, uh, next time, we'll be go, uh, going with Ole Bjerg and discussing masculinity and the meaning of being a man. So uh, get hyped, and we, I thank you for your support and your attention. Uh, have a good day. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you, Ben. All right.